Welcome to the Whiskey Congress. Honest, open talk dedicated to speaking the truth to those who are open to hearing it. Black, white, right, left. Most importantly, honest, bold, and fueled by good whiskey. In Whiskey Veritas, we are Whiskey Congress. Join the evolution. Whiskey Congress is back in session. Stephen and I are together in the Cleveland studio, and we are joined on the phone by a friend of the show. We call him Market Ben. We mention you on a fairly regular basis. And um, Ben, I'm going to have to ask you to give your Twitter credentials because I'll screw it up. Yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. It's always cool to join you. Um, I, you know, you guys have such a unique format, so I, I always enjoy the conversation because it's so... Uh, you know, interdisciplinary. You cover a lot of topics, but yeah, flattery Twitter, will get you yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it looks. Uh, yeah, but you know, if people want to connect me on Twitter. It, it's just king of convexity. Uh, well, I guess we call it X now, but um, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty easy. And uh, yeah, cool to be with you guys. Good to have you, Stephen. You uh, and Ben were talking during the week about some issues related to the market, which is his area of expertise. So I. We'd like to punt to you. Yeah. Um, so, Ben, thanks for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, we bring you on because you are well-versed in the market, um, you know, with, you know, what you do and in your analysis. I think it's good to sort of bring you on and sort of level set, you know, trying to remove as much of the politics and sort of bias out of it and just talk about what's actually happening. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about, uh, first thing is, is uh, energy and oil prices, right? Um, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of a rise um, in the price of oil. Um, you know, I think right now we're sitting around maybe, I think, what, $89 a barrel or something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. And it's projected to go up, you know, approaching that $100 barrel mark. Uh, can we talk a little bit about just what sort of, what's influencing that? What's, what's you know, what is normal behavior? What are some of the normal, typical things we see maybe as it relates to the time of year? And then what are some other sort of outlier factors that could be driving that up? Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, Ukraine, Russia, China will be in there, but let's talk about some of the things besides those factors and then get into how Ukraine, Russia, China are all impacting it. Uh, yeah, well, look, it's it's a core factor, um, and the right question asked because it's obviously directly related to inflation. You know, when we got inflation data this past week with CPI and PPI, and um, when you look at when you really dissect those figures, um, you know, it's very clear that you know that the spike in crude has put further upward pressure on um, inflation, just as a as a as a headline number. Um, obviously this is an input, it's a cost input for every business, every consumer. So it's meaningful. Um, and you're right, you know, we're sticky around this $90, a little north of $90 in WTI. I think Brent's a little higher, but, um, you know, we dipped way below 70. And you'll recall the Biden administration had signaled that they would be refilling the SPR, which they've, you know, depleted. We're in a, you know, a posture now where we need to re replenish and we've already begun that replenishment. At these elevated levels. Hey Ben, I'm gonna just Ben, I'm gonna Ben, I'm gonna stop you real quick. Just uh, yeah. SPR is the Strategic uh, Petroleum, Petroleum Reserve. Reserve. Yeah. Just Petroleum for Petroleum a lot of people aren't Reserve. hip to a lot of the uh, 
I was going to jump in CPI and PPI. Yeah, like so. I just yeah, I just want to try. PPI core. Uh, that's just uh, consumer price index. PPI uh, producer price index. So consumer price index is just kind of what's consumer facing and what you like what the consumer experiences at the retail level, and then PPI is kind of wholesale inflation. So that's what's kind of up the pipeline. And, and just to point out, the CPI was just a couple ticks hotter than expectation, but the PPI was much hotter than expected. So that kind of tells you that there's a lot more inflation still up the pipeline, and it's largely related to this issue you guys are bringing up regarding energy. And um, when I talked about the strategic petroleum reserves in, in the Biden administration starting to pivot towards refilling it, you know, we don't really have that to lean on. And that's largely what kind of helped us bring oil down back below 70 and now you've got OPEC, you've got Saudi Arabia. They're pressuring this, these prices much higher on a global uh, basis because, you know, for them, they're looking to get to that $100 level that you mentioned, Steve. And so they're cutting production. Um, you still have Russia pretty much offline due to sanctions and so forth. So there's a big dislocation with supply and demand. So so energy going higher is a, it's a geopolitical issue, but it's inflationary for sure as it relates to what we're seeing in the U.S. But I think what also aided to the uh, into the downswing was this, you know, this really underwhelming China reopen. There was a expectation that when China reopened post COVID, uh, you know, post their zero COVID policy, that there would be uh, a big, you know, a, a big demand spike and that would uh, push oil higher. And it's really that really hasn't been the case you know china still lags behind and their their numbers actually the, the recent uh, they published some numbers over the week this past week that were actually a little bit more robust but um th that really wasn't the the catalyst that that has taken oil higher it's really been the saudis and uh and opec just cutting production and now the biden administration without the you know the spr to lean on you know oils oils pressured higher so that's uh you know, it's a problem politically, but also economically. So here's a question. What what do you think is is depressing the numbers in China in terms of demand? Like, why did that not spike, right? Because, you know, post-COVID, the U.S., you know, we had all of our lockdowns. Nobody was driving. Everybody was remote. So oil was low, which is, you know, when you're talking politically, Trump loves to hang his hat on how low oil was and the price of gas was while he was in office. Well, you know, half your term, nobody was driving anywhere. We go back to work, you know, the demand goes up, we see the spike. Why didn't we see a similar spike in China? Uh, simply put, they're scared and broke and unemployed. Um, so they're scared in that they were told that this was a very serious virus. Uh, th there's, there's a there's not an inclination for these folks to just simply reintroduce themselves into pre-COVID society. Uh, there's a lot of hesitation there. Uh, further, uh, I mentioned broken unemployed. If you look at the unemployment rates, particularly among you know, the younger demographic, uh, which would generally be carrying their economy, you know, this is a three billion plus uh, person um, you know, demographic here when you think about their population. So, so these folks aren't working. They don't have money. So demand is obviously low. And um, you've got a regime right now that's, that's trying to figure out how to spur growth. I mean, they've you, in a, one more factor to talk about being broke. If you look at what's created wealth in, in that uh, in that country over the last, call it 10 or 12 years, it's largely been related to real estate. You've probably heard about some of these um, 
you know, some of these real estate businesses yeah, like that Black send Rock the and... loans against the properties and property values have plummeted. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these businesses are under substantial pressure with regard to their loan exposure. Um, so there's a, there's a negative wealth effect there as well. So I think all those factors have contributed to the underwhelming China reopen uh, dynamic that just, you know, was, we just haven't seen it materialize. So what, what should we be rooting for? Right. Should and and I because the you know a lot of people's thought is because we you know everybody is anti-China that we should be happy that this is happening to China and screw them. But is that the right frame of mind to have? Uh, yeah, that's a great question because it's it it's there's so much nuance to that, right? It's, yep. it's not as it's not as a binary as you know yes China or no China or pro China or you know, anti-China, it's a symbiotic relationship that, that we have, right? I mean, we need China. China probably needs us more than we need them, but um, it's a symbiotic relationship and it's kind of a necessary evil. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we're rooting for China to fail. Um, but what we're rooting for is really this, you know, this global soft landing relative to avoiding major recession like what we saw in 2007 2008 and so that's kind of what we're rooting for so we're kind of rooting for like central banks to coordinate a strategy that's going to um you know deliver us from that trajectory because right now the ma the macro data suggests that we're you know we're seeing a global slowdown that's really meaningful and if you look at granular data or you look at the anecdotal data here in the united states and and i can provide some of that too just from what i see um, and some of these private equity businesses and some of what's happening in the front lines with with retail and discretionary spending, you know, th the picture looks pretty, pretty negative. So what we're rooting for is a federal, not just a federal reserve, but global central banks in a coordinated fashion to figure out how do we, um, you know, how do we avoid just completely crushing demand through recession, um, you know, to, to tame this inflationary beast. And that's a really tough needle to thread. Yeah, I mean, in in you know, there's a lot of frustration with the Fed on the U.S. side, um, coming back mm -hmm. to domestic, uh, because their answer is increase interest rates, right? And when interest rates mm -hmm. go up, money gets more expensive. It gets harder for, you know, businesses to, you know, go out and get capital. Um, you know, like I have my own business that I've started here over the last year. And, you know, credit restrictions have gotten tighter you know, because the interest rates are higher and like I said, money is more expensive, it, it, you know, impacts your budget, especially with me doing, you know, real estate development, you know, you're looking at a, a $20 million development and, you know, I have to take out a, you know, $10 million loan. Well, interest rates going up, basically doubling where they were, you know, three, four years ago, um, that's going to grossly impact how, how my budget looks from a real estate development side because I have to calculate all that interest in, all that additional interest in because of the rise in interest rates. And as the Fed keeps doing that, it makes it harder and harder for me to do what it is that I do because I'm so reliant on, you know, pulling in debt um, to make these projects work. Uh, so can we talk a little bit, like what are your thoughts with what the Fed is doing? You know, should they continue to push rates up should they start to go back the other way or should we just leave them kind of where they are for now and see if there are other ways that we could help push that inflation down? 
Well, there are other tools than just the, the rate increases. And um, so a couple facets to this. Uh, number one, I mean, certainly real estate is far more sensitive to interest rates than other business sectors. So you know that firsthand. That's really problematic. And, you know, kind of the I think I can I think I can use the term bubble to some extent with regard to what we've seen post COVID in real estate, at least residential real estate. Commercial real estate is going to be under protracted pressure, in my view. And you probably have an opinion on this, Steve, as well, just in so far. I mean, a lot of the regional banks, when you saw the pressure back in March of this past year with, you know, uh, both First Republic and um, SBV and, and, and others that had a you know, meaningful exposure to CRE, but really it was more the hold to maturity uh, treasury portfolio that they had that really got them in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, you know, credit is drying up and it's it's tightening up and it's a problem, not just in real estate, but also other sectors of, of uh, the private uh, sector, private business. So uh, agree with you on that. And um, the other tools that I kind of insinuated were, you know, the Fed, to keep in mind the Fed's still unwinding their balance sheet. You know, they... Um, really built a, a substantial portfolio of risk assets through COVID when they were they were not just, you know, buying U.S. Treasuries to stabilize the market. They were also buying high yield debt. Um, so that unwind continues to accelerate uh, during the SBB uh, crisis. I, I, I use crisis loosely because it was mitigated almost immediately through these various Fed facilities. But um, the balance sheet actually increased for a short period of time, and now it is back to winding down in an accelerated fashion. So, so that is another form of tightening that is affecting markets in in the uh, in the form of liquidity. Uh, to your question about rates, um, you know, if I were advising the Fed, I, I think you probably can take another 25 to 50 basis points. I probably think that's what's what's going to happen before the end of this cycle, and I don't think that's necessarily going to tip anything over. Um, it's going to put more pressure on regional banks for sure. Regional banks, that problem has not been resolved. I can, I can tell you that firsthand. I, I know that for sure. <laughs> you um, and me both. <laughs> th that, that needs to be resolved. But, you know, I think you probably see a 10-year by the end of the year. You probably see a 10-year treasury somewhere north of 5%. And that's, that's a little bit of a, an outlier view. But I think all of the macro factors are aligning for that outcome. But if I'm the Fed, I think they'll pause here in September next week is the FOMC. So we'll get, we'll know on Wednesday, I think they pause and they probably take 25 in November and then we'll see what, you know, I mentioned CPI and PPI. We'll see what those data, uh, what those data points look like uh, the following month. And then maybe they get you another 25 in the first quarter next year. But the market right now is still pricing in at the end of the first quarter rate cuts. And I just, I think that's, uh, mistake, I'm not sure that right? that's uh, aligned with, yeah, I just I, and and so I'm seeing that as well. I just and I don't understand it to be honest with you. I mean, it's almost like well, if we price it in, like more like if you wish it, it'll come true sort of deal, right? Like if you want it hard enough, then you know, like maybe it'll happen, and it just doesn't seem like that's the direction that we're going. So I think it's just kind of bizarre that it's it's priced in that. Yeah, way. I, I agree, and I think that you know the resiliency of the labor market is really what is going to force the Fed to. I mean, when. When they, when the FOMC and Powell specifically, when they tell you higher for longer, there's no reason not to believe them. 
And so the idea that cuts would be coming, I think if we did get cuts, it's for the wrong reasons. You know, if you do get cuts, it's usually because there's some sort of an exogenous event or some sort of a substantial and meaningful economic downturn. And that's, you know, that's not exactly uh, bullish, not just for the economy, but also how we price risk assets. So I, I think higher for longer is probably the, you know, the path forward. And, and if we do get cuts, um, I don't think it'll be until the tail end of 2024, maybe even into 2025. Ben, let me ask you a quick question um, because you mentioned commercial real estate. And mm -hmm. I've been sort of kicking this around in my head since COVID that so many people used to go into the office in Manhattan, in downtown Chicago, in downtown San Francisco that are no longer doing that. And some companies are really pushing to get people back in the office. And I think it's mostly a, a CYA by the folks who are responsible for managing that real estate because their their relevance becomes a, a challenge. But I think that's going to lead to a massive crash in commercial real estate in large cities. What impact would that have on the market? And do you think I'm on the right track? Well, you, your concerns are, are, you know, a lot of folks share those concerns. I think they're legitimate concerns because, you know, return to office has really kind of leveled off and you're seeing for the most part, you know, uh, three, maybe four days a week tops, you know, with some of these, like you mentioned, some of the major Metro markets that are back to office. Uh, so that, that isn't a major issue because the footprints that, you know, just the, the, you know, the physical footprints that these folks have in these major metros, you know, they're, they're substantial. So as you pointed out, I mean, these are, these are liabilities. These are, uh, you know, these are recurring costs that are hitting bottom lines. And if you're paying for it already, right, you want to utilize it with bodies in chairs. Um, but, you know, I think COVID, in my view, there was a cultural change. Um, if you think about it, if let's just say you live in Hoboken, New Jersey, and your office is in lower Manhattan, and you've got to make that commute, you think about the cost and the time involved just to get to and from the office, you know, you're paying probably $20, $25 a day just in tolls over bridges just to get to and from. You're probably spending three hours in the car. Gas, wear and tear you know, on the car, parking. That, yeah. but, right. I mean, if you can alleviate that, it, and maybe you take less in salary to make up for that, but it's just, you know, at what point do you find that efficiency? At what point does the free market kind of, you know, trim that fat? And I think over time that's just, you know, that's just a reality. So I, I do think that uh, footprints will be reduced. Um, a lot of this, a lot of uh, these businesses have already sublet or repurposed uh, commercial real estate as a result. Yeah. So Ben, so, I'll just yeah. I'll jump in real quick. So two points to this conversation. One, um, because you know, post COVID, um, you know, I saw myself, um, you know, like early on when when I had left my company, um, I got contacted by a few different headhunters. Um, and at the time, I, you know, was was very focused just on on you know building our company up. So I wasn't really looking for jobs, but I was, I was getting, you know, uh, interest in, in, you know, uh, interviews from, from companies in different places like New York, um, even California, you know, for real estate development because of, because they were kind of expanding to the concept and the idea of you can do this and not physically be here. We don't need you to be in the office. You know, everything is done digitally. You know, most places don't even, you know, hire, you know, operating places don't use paper. 
Um, and so there wasn't a need for me to be in New York. But the interesting thing was, I, you know, I was talking to a recruiter uh, who was with a firm in New York. And, you know, we were talking about the salary. And it was it was substantially more than I would make in Cleveland. It was more along the lines of a middle-of-the-road salary in New York. But that was so much more than what I would make here. And she was explaining to me that they would still end up paying less, you know, for me to be in Ohio to basically working a job in New York, um, but they could, they, you know, like essentially they were paying me, offering to pay me less than, than someone who actually lived there. Um, and so for them, even though I felt that that salary was substantially higher for them, it was basically a deal if they could get me in because, you know, all the things that they, one, don't have to worry about paying for in terms of actual space and everything else. Um, but because of that regional difference in, in pay, Right, like they could still pay, you know, which you know, one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. But you know, someone in New York, that the expectation for that same role would be north of two hundred, right? But for me, like in Cleveland, that same role is going to pay me about one hundred and ten, right? So I'm looking at right. it like, wow, this is this is a huge jump for me. Um, meanwhile, for them, they're like, this is a steal, right? Like, so they're seeing some of that, you know, with the with the you know, more availability of, uh, of remote work between t teams and zoom and everything else. Like you can be, you know, you can basically be there without being there. And then the other part of it, when you mentioned repurposing, you know, if there, if we did see this sort of mass exodus of, you know, these companies leaving these kind of commercial real estate situations, it does create opportunity. And it, it you know, this is a heavily me focused conversation right now, <laughs> but again, what I do in, in affordable housing, uh, development, you know, a big, a big movement right now is the adaptive reuse of these commercial buildings, right? Like I'm looking at a building right now, um, you know, in the Youngstown, Ohio area, uh, that was a former office building that con would convert well into, you know, single, uh, single bedroom, two bedroom units um, that I could probably stack 50 apartments in, um, you know, right. and so looking at it, like for, so for a person like me, if we did see a big exodus, which we which we which we're kind of starting to see, there there does lie opportunity um, where it may not help the business that is leaving that building all so much. But between the fact that we've got a housing crisis where there isn't enough housing for people, um, and we don't have oh, you enough, guys, you guys cut out. I'm sorry. Um, hey, Jim. I'm trying to see what's happened. Um, Can you still hear me? You guys, there. I got a, I got a deadline. All right, are you sorry, Ben? Yeah, oh, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry about that. So, uh, because we have a housing crisis, um, you know, like that would present an opportunity for a person like me to go in and say, "All right, I'll I'll buy this building, I'll convert it to housing, and, and sort of basically solving a couple problems at once, right? Like I take the building off of the company's hands, and then we've got housing in a place where people may have access for those people who still have to go into work into these urban areas, right? It gives them kind of closer to where they need to be. So there is potential opportunity there. Now, you know, can I, you know, I alone can't do that, but I'm not the only developer that's seeing that sort of opportunity there. Um, so there, there could be, right. there could be some benefit to it, even if it's not, even it's just a question of who, who it benefits the most. Sure. Well, well, two, well, two things. Uh, the first issue you brought up about, um, remote work and just uh, access to talent with regard to New York to Chicago, et cetera, excuse me, New York to Cleveland, Chicago, any major metro to a mid-market. Um, you're absolutely right. Now, all of a sudden, if you're a, a New York-based business, 
instead of being hyper local with regard to your access to talent, now of course it's it's nationwide. So there's way more efficiencies from a cost basis that you can take advantage of if if you find the right people and you find the right systems and you have the right culture and the right training and and you know huge huge advantage to uh, create efficiencies with regard to talent acquisition and supporting those costs on your balance sheet. Uh, second uh, issue that you spoke of in detail, and you know this, I'm sure even better than I do, and um, you know, it's your business. You know, the biggest issue I've seen with regard to repurposing um, is really just basic infrastructure within the building, There's plumbing, for example. I mean, it, you know, a lot of these office buildings have, you know, one bathroom on a, a whole floor to support, you know, an office space, but yep. if you're going to have single unit living spaces it's like you've got to replumb the whole damn thing so a lot of times it's like is it just worth it to tear the building down and and rebuild i mean i know that's been a problem with some of the the buildings in downtown cleveland that they've tried to repurpose and had issues even in tower city they had an issue with some of that yep. so you know i know that that's a big problem with just the way these buildings were built with the purpose of being office space and to repurpose them for single units i know that can be a problem but you know for the right developer and the right guy to your point, they can be, it can really represent big opportunity. But I know that's one of the headwinds that some of this repurposing is, is based. Yeah, and you know, in my experience, and and your ability to really do your feasibility study um, and put a lot of thought into it, because I think there's a lot of developers out there that are more about volume. And so they're trying to, it's just like, all right, we got to get a project done every 18 months, bing, bang, boom. So they go into these and, and you know, they go to do their feasibility study of the building and they're not opening up enough walls. They're not really, you know, like they, you know, they, in some instances, you know, they're not doing a deep dive into the actual original drawings of the buildings to see what's there. Uh, and in some of, some of these older buildings, you know, good luck finding the drawings um, and, and being able to do that assessment. But it, it really comes down to attention to detail um, because, you know, I've, I've done it. I've done it in Baltimore. We took a building. Um, and we were able to convert it, and it was it. No, it was a challenge, right? It, it was a challenge. Um, it, it took a little longer than expected. That one had a 22-month construction schedule, um, and we ended up getting it done in 24 months. Um, I think the the budget on that was was like 20 or 28, 29 uh, million. And it ended up going over budget by a couple million, and a lot of that was due to the exact issue you said was the plumbing. Um, not only was we had to add plumbing, but it was the way it was put into the building was basically a jigsaw puzzle, which was really interesting, um, right. in a very expensive right. and, you know, Stephen is punching walls sort of way, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but we were able to get it done. And a lot of that was just because we had a really good architect who was really, really paid attention to detail. Um, and we had a good, we had a good contracting team. Now, again, like that, there's another problem talking about labor, you know, having enough labor to do that type of work is also something that I think is putting pressure on the market uh, because, you you know, the skilled labor to build, we just do not have it, right? Like my dad yeah, was a... It, it's tight. Yeah. And also yeah. to your point, I mean, there, a lot of these uh, municipalities and in, in these, they're providing grants, as you know, and support to, to repurpose these buildings because it's in their best interest as well. I and mean, it brings people into the city centers and so that's that's good for everybody. It reinvigorates the local economy and the in the downtown vibe and business. And so there, there's a lot of factors to it. And, and you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, just a personal anecdote. I mean, one of my favorite periods of time living in Cleveland before I 
you know, I spent a lot of time living in Chicago, but I lived downtown at the hat factory, an old repurposed factory. <laughs> yeah. And I loved it. It was a ton of, I loved being there. It was a great space. Was that right about the map room? Wonderful. And it was just great to be in an urban center for that period of time. And so, yeah, some of this repurposing that's being subsidized by municipalities and local governments, I think it's, it's really great. And um, hopefully we can, you know, again, just kind of counteract some of the work from home stuff. If you get people living in city centers, that actually even further alleviates pressure from businesses having to pay premiums to source the best talent. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see. The fact, hat factory that's above the map room, right? Or right next to it. Uh, it was on West Sixth Street, so it was right across from the old Liquid. Now, now it's oh, oh, else. that's right, that's right, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, well, it, it was above uh, essentially Tequila Ranch. Yeah, Tequila <laughs> Ranch with that for now with a, that mechanical bull inside. Yes, we're now having yeah. a. If you're in Cleveland, listening to this, this all makes sense. If you're not, sorry. <laughs> or hey, people, yeah, people yeah. travel. This is going way, way back. Yeah. Way, way back. But, yeah um, it, was, it was a fun place. All right, so um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, electric vehicles, their impact on the market, sort of where that's going. Um, you know, I, my view on electric vehicles, just in general, I always thought they were the concept was cool. Um, I've always said that you know you give me a good looking, you know, full size truck that you know I would definitely get an EV just because you know putting gas in a truck every you know, so every every other mile, it seems like at times, um, mm -hmm. is obnoxious. And so not being a, you know, not having to be, you know, sort of hostage to gas prices would be cool and still have my full-size truck with all its full capabilities. Um, right. I thought Elon Musk was answering that call and then he did that fucking cyber truck and I've never wanted to punch someone I didn't know more when <laughs> they released that monstrosity of a stupid thing this has come up like 10 times on the show i, I know like, i just <laughs> ben it drives me nuts and, and and it's such the it's almost like he, it's almost like he literally did it to like a middle finger to people like me right he's like all right yeah. i'm gonna do a truck but it's not gonna be something that you like it's gonna be what i like yeah. so i'm gonna go it's, cyberpunk it's like, it's like the pontiac as meets the uh you know the delorean the, the from fucking back to the future yeah it's, it's yeah the the, the the yeah the aztec meets the vault meets my asshole um right yeah it, it, yeah so but you know but to to the broader sense right like i mean i think you, you know biden and his administration are pushing pushing electric vehicles you know they want so many by 2030 um, you know, there's a lot of questions and I think we've even talked about it. Like, you know, do we have a power grid to support it? Um, there's range anxiety there, you know, there's all these, this, the sort of things. I mean, my, my issue is like, look, you know, building these cars is not exactly doing the, the, the world, the, the climate or the environment, any favors, you know, with the materials that you have to use to put these batteries in and, you know, some of the different features that they're using and the windows and the glass and the, um, and the and the electrical and everything else. Uh, so, like, where where are we going with these EVs, Ben? Well, clearly, um, the you know the the government's incentivizing these you know these these vehicles in this format. So um, that that is going to govern behavior to a large extent. And so adoption is it's there is momentum behind adoption. Um, Ecologically, I mean, like we should just let's be very real about this. I mean, these are electric vehicles. I mean, how do we source electricity? <laughs> right, uh, Bur coal. burning Bur coal, coal for the most part. Yeah. Right? So it's like let's just be real about, you know, whether or not this is really an ecological thing. I mean, and, and by the way, we haven't figured out what to do with some of these batteries. Um, 
which are, you know, loaded with heavy metals and all other kinds of like deleterious chemicals uh, from an ecological standpoint. So, so the notion that these are somehow like some ecological um, silver bullet, I, I think is a little bit misguided. Um, with regard to getting the um, consumer, to your point, not not beholden to the price of oil, I, I, that's a, that's a that's a good argument, and 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 I embrace that. Um, look at consumer behavior right now, and actually, you just saw a note this past week with what Ford's doing, and, and you brought up full size trucks, the F uh, one hundred and fifty Lightning from Ford. Uh, very expensive vehicle, oh, beautiful fucking truck. Yep. I mean, if you've seen, it's a really nice vehicle for sure. And you know all the uh, ancillary usages with regard to its power sources. I mean, you could use it as a external generator, generator for your house. house. Yeah, you want amazing. To. But you know it's very expensive. And so what Ford has done because demand is pretty low on this because of its its uh, SRP, elevated SRP, they're starting to divert more of the dollars to the hybrid version. So you know it's ICE technology, but it's you know complemented with with a you know with an electric battery that's you know supplements uh in a hybrid uh format so so i think the consumer really kind of wants the hybrid because you brought up range anxiety i think that's one of the biggest issues with regard to people going full ev um so i, I think ev there's momentum behind that i wouldn't push back i mean look the mercedes offerings Cadillac Lyric, the BMW offerings. I mean, there's some really beautiful e uh, EVs out Here's there. a question, Ben. Would you buy one? Yeah. And so, I mean, when it comes to EV broadly, I think adoption will likely accelerate um, mostly due to all the incentives. And, and you know, um, that could change with a different administration, by the way, I should say. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're starting to get into the real crux of the brand issues and who are going to merge as the winners. And, you know, everybody likes to think that Tesla is going to be the winner. You know, and I brought this point up a lot, you know, driving a Tesla, I mean, driving a Tesla, the implicit, I mean, you got, you, you guys know this. I mean, you see a guy driving a Tesla on the road. What's your immediate assumption about the guy driving that car? That he's a Musk simp, right? Yeah. That he's going to, you know, he's, that he's, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to like totally impugn these people because it's a total assumption, but it's like, if I were walking around town wearing a Steelers Jersey, people are going to assume I'm a Steelers fan. Right. Right. If I'm running around town driving a Tesla, they're going to assume I'm a Elon Musk fan. Now Ford doesn't have that issue. Most people see a Ford F-150 on the road. They don't think of Jim Farley. Somebody sees a Chevy Silverado on the road. They don't think of Mary Barra. It's because these people don't talk shit when they're tweaked out on ketamine at 3 a.m. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So, no, so these true. people stay in their lane and just do their business because they're professional CEOs. Elon Musk is a com he, he's a total wild card. So that's, he's a celebrity, so yeah. Yeah. So what you have is a brand issue, right? So 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 Tesla, their total addressable market should be huge, but because Elon Musk is such a polarizing figure, whether you agree with him or not, a lot of people obviously agree with him, but whether you agree with him or not, it's you know people don't want to observe. You know, I saw something on Twitter just overnight where it was like a one of these big time Twitter uh, Tesla bulls was he posted some video about somebody that wanted to key his he was driving a Tesla somebody wanted to key his car be, and the, and they caught him on video and the person's like yeah I don't like Elon Musk that was going to why it was going to key your car now just think about it why would you want to absorb that type of a uh, liability like you know I, if I'm driving around in a Tesla and people just assume I'm an Elon Musk and a lot of people hate Elon Musk and they're going to key my why would I 
you know, why would I take on that liability? Right. Even I mean, if I like Elon Musk, right? So, right. so there's an addressable market issue, I think, when it comes to Tesla. But EVs broadly, the government's going to continue to support and, and uh, subsidize and incentivize. And so I do think there's momentum behind EV. But I, I personally, I have an, EV, uh, an ICE vehicle. I've, I have no interest in going EV uh, in the short term or medium term. So for me, I, I'm happy with what I got. I can get gas on any corner that I need it. And um, and I'm cool with it. So I, I'm not one that's uh, I'm, I'm I guess I'm just not the target demographic. So uh, where I sit on this is I, you know, my, my daily driver, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a truck guy and that won't change. Um, I, I would like Ram is coming out. They're releasing their EV truck next year um, or in here in 24. So I, I'll look at it. Um, you know, depending on where I'm at financially, but I'm more, I think I'll stick with a nice vehicle, um, internal combustion, combustion engine, um, for those trying to figure out what ice is. Uh, but I'll be honest, the Corvette E-Ray, I, I watched that thing eat everything that they put on the drag strip beside it. And now I have to have one. <laughs> right, yeah. Dude, I, I watched that car. Like, first of all, when they shifted the Corvette to the mid-engine, like I know a lot of you know traditionalists like lost their shit, but I, I'm just a car guy. I like all of them. I like old school muscle. I like hyper cars. I don't care European, American, whatever. Just I want to go fast. And that Corvette E-Ray was eating the Porsche 911, the Lamborghini, uh, the Ferrari. It ate the Tesla S, um, the Bugatti. It, I mean, it, it's just it's stupid. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I saw it against the Lucid Air, that Lucid Sapphire Air. Um, that thing is is also ridiculously fast. Um, but if I can get my hands on a Corvette E-Ray, um, then you know that black streak you see going down ninety. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep I'll keep my eyes open for sure. Right. Don't blink. <laughs> but, uh, but you know the other layer to this, and I think a lot of you know a lot of what has dry, uh, driven demand through EV is some of the, you know, the, uh, the full self-driving or the autonomous driving um, potential. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes, we, and we've talked about this in previous conversations. We go back to like Minority Report. You guys remember that old school movie, Minority Report? With your boy, yeah. with your twin. <laughs> yeah, and we reference it all the time when you and I, when you and I, uh, when us talk. And, mm -hmm. you know, you'll remember how those vehicles worked. And, but those vehicles are working on smart infrastructure, and we still have dumb infrastructure, right? Right. So it's like the the idea that full self driving is 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 some key that's going to unlock, um, you know, further like accelerated adoption and, com and you know just a complete evisceration of of uh, you know legacy ICE vehicles. I I it just doesn't seem to be uh, eminent in my view. Yeah. So no, I mean, it's not anytime um, soon. Like there, there's so many factors. I mean, we you know our roads are shit. Um, you know, our pedestrians are idiots. Um, our cities aren't designed well as it is. Um, you know, so it, it, there, there's a lot of factors in there um, that are, are, I think, will slow the adoption of the, like, people want, the, like, they love the concept of it. Um, and for some people, if you're doing, a, like, if you do a long drive, like, I got a buddy who lives uh, in Raleigh, and he commute, and he doesn't commute, but he often drives to Baltimore from Raleigh, and it's not a, it's not a super long drive, but he uses right. his he you know he's got a uh, he's got a Tesla, and, and he uses that auto feature, auto drive feature, uh, um, autonomous feature on a regular basis. But you know, if you're just a daily driver, driving around like in a in, in an urban setting in the city, whatever, um, you're gonna be less inclined, comfortable, and just basically because of other drivers on the road. 
right? And, and how much trust do you have in this vehicle to be able to have your same awareness, right? Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of hesitancy there. Um, and so I, I think we're a ways away from wide scale adoption and having it be, um, you know, really effective without a lot of issues, right? I totally agree. And keep in mind too, that as, as adoption does accelerate and, and people, you know, assume that it's going to, you know, kind of fade ICE vehicles into obsolescence, you know, if it does put enough pressure on oil prices, for example, lower people with ICE vehicles that were like, well, I was incentivized to go EV because gas was so expensive. Well, now all of a sudden gas is much cheaper because everybody's driving EVs. Why the hell would I change, you know? And that, that technology is just, it's not going anywhere. Um, so I think there's going to continue. That's why I think Ford was smart to kind of pivot to the hybrid model because that's where the consumer's at. And um, I don't think that's going to change for, for a, a, a substantial period of time. I mean, I, I consider myself a pretty serious environmentalist. I'm, I am one of those people who has resisted the idea of EVs because of uh, range anxiety. And so the hybrid to me is actually like the, okay, this buys me that comfort. So I think I'm kind of that target audience. Sure. And, and Jim, to your point, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's a co- I mean, it's, it's coal fueled technology, right? It's coal fueled energy. It's heavy metals in these batteries. We haven't figured out what to do with them when they, you know, exhaust their usefulness. Right. I mean, these are, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of ecological factors right. that are far under discussed when it comes to EVs. It's not some magic bullet. Um, you know, what would be, I mean, and this is kind of out of the box here. I shouldn't say it's out of the box. It's, I mean, we, we see it with bus buses run on hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen technology, right? I mean, hydrogen yeah. is probably the cleanest out. There. So why can't, why aren't we using that more hydrogen? Why aren't we talking about that with regard to cars? I, yeah. So I, th- I thought I like, look, I, for the exact reason you just said, a friend was talking to me about hydrogen and I was like, I think it's great. Like, I just like, I, for whatever reason, we're not seeing it. And like I, me and him were smoking a cigar in the lounge the next day, here in Cleveland, it was a it was a, a RTA bus, and you know there's a big sign on it, you know, fueled by hydrogen. And I'm like, right. well, hold up, right? Like if you could do it in a damn bus, right? That's carrying people all around town all day in Cleveland, where you've got people from Parma driving, which I mean, like that's you know, like that's Walking Dead over there. Then, I, I, like, why can't you put it in? Why why can't you just take that and put it in my truck? It makes you scratch your head. Well, I mean, hydrogen is dangerous, hydrogen. though. Dude, it's on a bus. Hydrogen <laughs> driving a tow motor around a, a, a auto shop, you know? It's like these little tow motors run around on hydrogen tanks. It's like, well, wait, it's, why, isn't, why isn't this being used in passenger cars in a commercial level? I, right, like, I what, don't get it. Like, okay, it's dangerous, but this is, this is Cleveland. You've Understood. seen the same I, sort of accidents I, I do. We've got buses driving around. Listen, I saw a bus when I was working downtown. Right. I saw one of the wildest things that I still don't know exactly what happened. There was a bus on its side and <laughs> okay. a Ford Fiesta like on its hatchback with the lights pointed up to the sky. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I still don't. Right. And it was the most bizarre thing. And I was really hungry and going to lunch, so I didn't have time to investigate. But my point is, is like, OK, so. But if we, if they're willing to put it like, because think about it, you said it's dangerous. It is, but, but they that put mean it. It can't be fixed. Hold on. If it's so dangerous, why the fuck would they make it a vehicle that they use for public transportation? That seems like the last place it would be if it were so dangerous. Well, I mean, I could bring up the Hindenburg and tell you how dangerous it can be. 
that was a hydrogen-filled balloon, and that did not go well. Okay, and, that's true. Can't argue <laughs> that. And that um, was not great. No, but that was 1940s technology or 30s technology. So they probably have ways to make it better now. And maybe you can make it safe where there's like automatic shuttle. It's in public transportation buses right now. I understand. And I don't know what they've done to make it safer. And maybe they can make it reliable. And I mean, the great thing about it is you burn hydrogen, you produce water. So you produce water vapor. No carbon impact, no nothing. If it can be done safely, it would be awesome. I don't know what they do to make it safe. And I I just think that's why people resist it. But I can't, I can't go with that argument that it's not safe. If they're putting it in buses and they're using it in tow motors in, in factories, right? I mean, U.S. factories don't have the history of being the safest, right? But I, I just I, – right. I feel like that – go ahead, Ben. Well, I was just going to say in how many tow motors or, or buses are you seeing explode? Uh, in, in the, it's in apples and orange. I mean, the Hindenburg, you know, that was – the hydrogen was used to, you know, elevate. Yeah, make it float, sure. It, it wasn't in – it wasn't propulsion, you know, the, the way it's used in buses. It's a completely different application of the technology. But, but yeah, I mean, is there a, is there a potential that some of this stuff is combustible? Could it, sure, but you know, cars explode every day. Capacity to, you know, avoid that issue. And like Steve said, I mean, it's the application with regard to city transportation, mass transportation. It's it's been demonstrably safe. Uh, is it, all, all I'm saying is that is the argument against it. And I'm sure there's been technological advances that make that argument maybe invalid. I mean, there's lots of things we do today that we started doing in 1950, and they're completely irrelevant. But we've been doing it that way forever. So, so whatever it is, I don't know. I I just again, I mean, go out and get a 83 Gremlin and have somebody run into it with a bike from the back, and everybody's dead. Right, like you know, I mean, like they have to take Pinto the Pinto was the famous or one, Pinto. Right? I'm sorry, but I, I, those are all the same terrible car. But I, I mean, I'm just you know, like I, I mean, you know, we've got cat cars filled with gasoline. Right, gasoline goes boom. You know, with 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 you know, relative ease. Right, little light a match. <laughs> I I mean, I don't want to go down the road. I do want to talk about the scene in the movie Top Secret where they touch the back of a Pinto at like one mile an hour. The dude explodes like a nuclear bomb. One of my favorite. But I mean, I just I, it's it's just you know bringing up the hydrogen. That that's just something that's interesting and and. You know, there's conspiracy theorists out there that's saying that the oil lobby is preventing hydrogen and, you know, assassinating people who bring it up. And then, you know, who, who knows? But I, I think it's it's definitely an interesting idea, and I'm curious as to why it's not getting pushed. Um, but I do want to move, like, sticking in the world of cars. We got the by, UAW- by the way, one last thing. We, don't forget we had steam-powered locomotives in the 1920s that were literally running on just nothing but steam, right? right. Like, so well, coal-fueled steam. Well, sure, but you know the point is, there's just you know some. This is all analog technology that can be re-engineered in so many ways, and it's you know it's just you know what's you sometimes have to step step back and and understand you know what's the most um, profitable on at scale, right? So so that kind of dictates what's available from a commercial standpoint, and you know maybe that's maybe why hydrogen is is uh de-emphasized or or hasn't been adopted broadly there's just there's just so many different layers to what gets produced at scale and what's commercialized so it's it's not always just what's most efficient or most ecological sometimes it's what's most profitable um so i want to jump into the uaw strike right we're talking about cars auto industry Mm -hmm. um you know this is always i always feel bad when you have these sort of these sort of strikes um 
you know, mm -hmm. because it, it, it impacts so many people, right? You've got the workers who aren't getting paid, the workers that are out there protesting and demanding, you know, fair wages. Um, it's, it's, you know, I, this one, I, I don't know if the, if the auto industry, you know, if the automakers, they don't have much of a leg to stand on. You know, you're talking about record, record profits the last few years, um, you know, really the last, you know, decade. Um, and, and, you know, like the, the workers are saying, hey, you know, we, we helped to kind of dig you out of that mess in 2008. Um, you know, the debt got well, paid. The go the go let's be honest, the government. Well, dug, yes, dug out. The, gov yeah. the government dug them out, but you, you needed workers to make that work. Right. Yeah. To, to get to a point where you could where you could pay that debt back um, and then, well, you know, they needed jobs. Right. So you know, but but I'm just saying, like I mean, like so so it seems like you're more on the side of the of of the automakers here. To talk talk to us a little bit about this. Um, so and not the, it's not fair to say sides, no, but no, I, I mean, look, I don't know it's a polarizing topic, and people are passionate about it on either side for obvious reasons. I mean, we're talking about people's livelihoods here, but you use the word "what's fair." Um, I I'll just share an anecdote. Um, really good friend of mine from high school his dad was a union official and uh he got him he got him right out of high school got him a job as an electrician at gm and uh you know this is going back uh, in the last you know i i this, let's go back to like 1999 2000 he was making north of 100k and i spent a lot we hung out all the time and, and he bragged to me about you know he worked third shift he'd show up drunk drunk drank all night he'd go to the bar before he went to the shop uh playing cars all day napping through the shift he's like i don't do shit i can't get fired because i'm in the union and it was a total blow-off job to him and, and he was making all so you wonder how that factors into the srp of a car and you know and again inflation adjusted you go back to a hundred thousand dollars in two in 2000 i mean inflation adjusted now you're talking like 175 180 grand and it's like, you know, these guys are demanding a 40% pay increase. They want a four-day work week, and they want guaranteed pensions. And I'm sorry, man, guaranteed pensions, that's a, that's a relic of the past. 40% increase in your pay. I've got no issue with unionization from an ideological standpoint, right? I don't have a problem with unionized labor. I just need to see the demands be commensurate with the value delivered. And if, you know, as a union, you have to self-police this fucking shit. You can't have fucking, you know, dead wood people pulling this shit like what I just described and, and think that you're going to come to the table and yeah. take it seriously. And by the way, they talk about record profit margins. Fucking pull up a goddamn chart and look at the last six to eight to ten years of GM and Ford and Stellantis. You see margin compression like crazy. I mean, these operating margin for these OEMs is like six or seven percent. These guys aren't making a lot of money. It's all about scale, right? So it's not like these guys are making money hand over fist. So this notion that these guys are, you know, yeah, the CEOs get paid a lot, but you know, look, if you're jealous of the CEO, fucking move up the chain. I mean, not everybody can be a fucking CEO. Now, I'm not going to sit here and defend CEOs getting paid exorbitant amounts of money. By the way, a lot of it's tied to performance and stock performance and so forth. But you know, come on. It, you, you gotta if 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 the union were to get the demands that they have on the table, what's going to happen from price a of cars is going to go is through that, the roof. 
prices of cars are going to go substantially higher. It's going to make it less affordable, just like housing is right now, right? Residential housing, that is, Stephen. You know that firsthand. Oh, and it's going to price people out of the market, and it's just going to create more of a, a wealth gap. So well, I, in my view, they need to come to terms. Um, I, I'm not necessarily saying the union shouldn't press for incremental uh demands but what's on the table right now to me is absurd so we kind of got into a lot of the different things i wanted to address um so you know as it relates to the union like so like this hits really close to home because my father works for gm um but right. he's not in the union so he's in the upper management so he's he's not in the union and my dad's job right when they when they pulled him in the lordstown was to look at the plant Right and solve for inefficiencies. They were having a ton of accidents. They they were, you know, literally losing whole ass pieces of giant equipment. Um, it, it was just it to was theft. A, uh, to theft or just flat out like they put it on. Okay. Yeah, negligence. Right. Okay. Like oh, we're gonna put this on the, all of it. Right. And so he and what he was able to do over the course of a few years was turn it around to the, the, it was, Lordstown was the least efficient plant in terms of safety and productivity and everything in GM's, you know, plant roster. And he got it to like the second or third most productive out of all of GM's plants in the country. Um, and a big part of that was he had to sit down with the unions and tell them like, look, you know, I can't, I'm not negotiating on behalf of, of the company. I'm not telling you what to do, but you know, because you're not policing your people, these things are happening, right? Like you've got people who, you know, that are getting legitimately injured. Then you have the people who are full of shit and not doing anything at all, but they're putting more pressure on the people that are actually working. And he just sat down and had a real conversation with them. Now this took, this took months, uh, over a year to get them to sort of start to clean up their act. But once they did that, what they saw were like just these so much greater productivity and efficiencies and everything else that then what was it what what they were able to do by self-policing and sort of cleaning things up then all of a sudden when 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 they got to their their most efficient and highest producing point then their ability to negotiate become became so much stronger exactly right, right. exactly Hundred percent, and, and that's what I'm saying. And that's and that's right, and that's and that's really what needs to happen. Um, it, it should come internally from the UAW, right? Like, and they should recognize that as a whole. But like that, that's that's really what would give them much stronger, stronger bargaining position. And to your point, you know, asking for a forty percent increase is ridiculous because you know you have to understand that gets passed on to the consumer. And then if if consumers can't afford the stuff that you're making, then you're not going to be making it because you're you're going right. to get laid off. Um, you know, so I agree with you. Reducing what those demands are, um, bringing them more in line with with reality. Um, you know, doing the self policing, but I still think it's worth having the conversation, right? Like I, I so mm -hmm. it's because I don't. To your point, I don't. This can't be just a black and white corporate versus the union. You have to look at all the factors, um, and you know. And so when I was talking about like what's fair, it really was kind of like everybody taking a step back and looking like what what is going to get us all to where we want and need to be. Right. And so union, you got to ask for less and you got to be better. You know, company, you got to pay more and be willing to, you know, but but figuring out how to how to find that balance. Um, and, you know, we'll see how long this lasts. We'll see what the overall impact is, um, you know, because this is also going to drive up. Right. Like if they're not producing cars and you're going to see, a, you know, like then if, you know, 
car dealerships are going to start laying off salespeople, right? And then people are going to, you know, you're not going to get cars into these right. dealerships and the few cars that they have, they're going to put even more of a premium on them and that's going to drive prices up. So then well, what yeah, happens? Yeah, there's a cascading effect. And in fact, it, and what happens when the strike is over, those prices aren't going to come back down. And she was, she was pretty articulate on this point when she talked about the fact that, and again, this is just kind of her, you know, whatever their internal analysis is, but for every job, uh, laid off or, or potentially every union. There's six jobs up the supply chain, right? When it comes to just parts suppliers and different component suppliers and stuff like that that are affected by this. So there is a cascading effect for sure. And um, keep in mind, you know, Ford and GM have largely anticipated the strike. So production had been, you know, ahead of demand. So, so they have a pretty solid pipeline of inventory. Um, and, and the union, on the other hand, UAW this is, uh, their, their uh, strike fund is, is pretty de depleted. Like, they don't have a lot of money to fund these people. They're, they're, you know, you get still paid when you're on strike. The union will pay you until they run out of money and the strike fund runs out of money. That's going to happen in a matter of weeks, whereas the, the OEMs, these guys have inventory for six, eight. In the case of Stellantis, they've got like 12 months of inventory with the Jeeps and stuff like that. I mean, they've, they've anticipated this. So... You know, the, right now the union is running a hardcore, uh, you know, kind of PR campaign to get their messaging out there and kind of, you know, this this pro labor kind of, uh, you know, you know, call it some sort of an everyman kind of relatable messaging, and it's effective, and and I commend them for that, but but they're raising on a busted flush here because because they don't they don't have the runway that the OEMs do. I and love the, the way, love I the poker reference, man. By the way, just yesterday, GM already laid off like 600 people at one of these Michigan plants. They said, you know what? You want to fuck around? <laughs> 600 of you guys? Find out. Your shit and get out of here. Get done. Um, so I want to jump out of um, car market stuff, get more into the political stuff. Um, sure. Donald Trump getting the gag order. Um, I think this is interesting. You know, the people, you know, the Trump supporters are, you know, going down their usual route, not looking at anything that is actually true or factual, um, you know, talking about free speech and everything else. Um, I, I, Jim, give me your thoughts, right? You put this on yeah, the board. I, I did put it on the board. So my thought was this is a very complicated issue. And no, it's I, not. Well, okay. It's going to be a difficult thing for the courts to negotiate, navigate. No, it's not. Because, okay, well, here's why I think it is. Because they're saying you can't say things that are directed at court officials. You cannot say things that are directed at potential witnesses which is what gag orders are for. Mm -hmm. And and we're in the first time in our country's history where the former president of the United States is the one who's got this. He's got his own platforms. He's got a mob behind him. And he's going to defy the order. And then what do you do? Put him in jail? Okay. You can't. So the fuck I can't? Why can't I? <laughs> Why can't I? How are you going to how are you going to manage putting the former president who is under secret service protection in a jail cell easy show your ass up to rikers we're booking you we're putting you in there's this is an official court order this isn't hard right what it's clear what he's not supposed to do so he violates it you have evidence you're hearing and now look the, here's the thing the penalty for this i think it's 
the max penalty for violating a gag order is like, I don't know, 10 days in jail, maybe 30, depending on the location. Um, and then the max fine is, it's not going to be more than $1,000, maybe $5,000 at the okay, most. No so I'm pretty sure for, you know, you argue that Trump isn't a real billionaire, but I'm pretty sure he can afford $1,000. Um, and you know, the jail thing, if it were me, because I'm a petty bitch, I would absolutely put his ass in jail, <laughs> but you know, will this judge security issues related yeah, to security. listen, it, listen, he needs to think about that. The secret service is there. Well, no, I'm thinking about, I, I'm thinking the, about like his supporters literally breaking him out of jail and having his supporters going to break him out of Rikers. His supporters are going to break him out of Rikers. Well, he'll be going to jail in Georgia. Or, I'm so. sorry. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I was thinking about New York. Um, because, you know. Uh, but I'm sure. He's indicted in four states. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? That I, I got one wrong. But, okay. But, I, listen. <laughs> County jail in Georgia. Uh, okay. I mean, if, they, if they're going to. If, if they really think that that. Like, you you want to break. You, what are they going to do? They're going to do jailbreak? Uh, Steve. I. What are they going to do? Or what are they okay, try to so do? now I'm rooting know. for it. Now I'm rooting <laughs> for it. Because I want to see Bubba roll up in his truck, right? Throw, throw the straps around the bars on the window and try and, and rip his axle out, try to rip I, it out. I, I, I do not believe that would be their strategy, although I won't rule it out. I mean, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, so the reality is they're not going to put him in jail. They'll just fine him. Right, they'll just find him, and and because there's the penalty for violating a gag order isn't for a guy like him, right? It's not that steep because realistically, you're right. They're probably not going to put him in jail. They will find him, um, or depending on the judge and their mood, they they may, maybe they do put him in jail, right? And what's then? What's he going to do? Is he going to defy that order, have a warrant out for his arrest, and make this messy? He could. I could see him doing but, that. But I mean, at that point, I think you. you you know, I think you have to, at some point, somebody's got to hold the motherfucker accountable, right? And so he, I think this is, this is, I don't think this is that difficult of a decision. I think if he violates it, you hit him with a fine first. If he violates it again, then you say, all right, fine. Then you will go to jail. I don't care about your secret service. They, if you, they're, if they want to go in, I guess they can. No, they can't. But I mean, you, you just, you, you send him, you send him in jail, right? <laughs> He's, def he's definitely probably too dumb, fat, and slow to pull the shit that that guy in Pennsylvania pulled with him getting broken out. <laughs> that guy, well, he's, he was out for like a week, man. That Two weeks. Was running running yeah. wild. Uh, right. I don't think Trump, uh, unless he put a bucket of KFC or something in front of him, I don't think he can, I don't know what's going to motivate him to be able to accomplish something like he's that. A bit, I know he's a big McDonald's guy or give him a dry-ass steak and ketchup. God, he's such yeah. a... <laughs> but, but, no, I, I think to your guys' point, though, the real issue is you know, all the, the, you know, the fanfare aside with regard to his, you know, these court proceedings that he, and by the way, multiple charges on multiple fronts in 91. multiple states 91. for multiple issues, which are mostly legit. Um, and so in some cases, not legit, I, I should say. There's some that are more, I think, politically motivated, but the, let's put that aside for a moment. The question is, is this guy on the ballot in 2024? And I it's really hard to see that materializing in my view. So I, I think Trump is a paper tiger at this point and it's unfortunate. And you guys, we've both, you know, we've, we've talked about this when you guys have had me on the past. He's just such a cancer to the conservative ideology. If the GOP were smart, they'd, they'd turn the page here and figure out, I mean, I don't think DeSantis is necessarily your answer. You know, we could talk about this Vivek guy, uh, young guy, sharp guy. I know Vivek because of uh, the Strive Fund and he was an anti-ESG guy in the private equity and the financial space. That's how I knew Vivek before he got into politics. 
Um, I think he's an impressive guy. He, he's tried to kowtow a little bit to the MAGA community. So he's a little bit polarizing. But the question is, all of these issues, does, is, is Trump still legitimately on the ballot in 2024? I think it's the opposite. I think that they, I, I think that they, when the GOP looks at the candidates, right, I think they can't look beyond DeSantis. I think they see DeSantis, realize that that guy is not the guy, and I, again, have acknowledged that I was wrong. I thought he was, but, I, again, I was wrong. And I don't think that... Uh, Wait, you know, you, I, you, you, what did you say about... You said what were you wrong about? DeSantis? DeSantis, yeah. I, th I thought DeSantis... Like, looking at DeSantis's resume, right, without, his, without him opening his mouth, it's like this guy should be... He should be going away... The, the GOP nominee over Trump, over anybody, right? Again, just looking at his resume, you know, you've got Harvard, you've got Yale, you've got, you know, JAG and, you know, like what he, you know, what he did in JAG and his, his time in, in, the D, in the Department of Defense and DOJ and then, you know, Congress and every, and, and governor of Florida. Uh, but then he opens his mouth and you're like, oh, never mind. Um, you know, and so, I just I think the GOP doesn't they don't have a plan other than Trump and they don't see anyone else who can, you know, kind of keep, yeah. you know, rally they're, the they're, troops. Yeah, they're to Trump. But yeah. your point about DeSantis opening his mouth, in my view, his biggest issue was he's anti business attacking Disney the way he did and using government against the private yeah. sector. That's pretty anti-conservative in my view. I'm a lifelong ideological conservative. I saw that and I said, this guy, forget about it. You know, you, you can't use the government against private business because you got a political vendetta. I don't care if they're pro-gay or don't say gay or whatever the fuck. I don't care if somebody's gay or not. Go fuck whoever you want. It doesn't matter to me. You shouldn't be getting the government, the state government involved in that. And that's where DeSantis went wrong. He should have he should have just kept his mouth shut on Disney and just now granted Disney has this, you know, uh, grandfathered, you know, golden brick road with regard to their tax treatment and everything else. But I mean, that's where DeSantis, in my view, went totally wrong. That, that was anti-conservative. He's built his whole campaign around it. I'm going to do something I hate to do and defend Steve. Um, but he was seeing the DeSantis train coming and basically, you know, saying this guy is a real threat. This guy's a real thing. And he's. His advice was, if I'm his campaign manager, I'm shutting the fuck up until the very last minute. And as soon as he stopped shutting the fuck up, things went bad. And, and right. you know, to your point about Disney, not like so he does that, which I like I thought was like that was when I would, my eyebrows went up and said, OK, Ron, what are we doing here? Right. But then he doubled down on it. And then not only like you said. You know, now he's running his campaign on like he, you know, I'll do it at the federal level. It's like, well, well no, 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 no. We don't, we don't use the government against private business, Bubby. That's not how this works. And and you know, I just I can't say I'm disappointed because my point with DeSantis was looking at his resume, looking at who the guy was. I thought he was dangerous. I thought he was the wrong guy. Oh, yeah. In yeah, the he White had a House, ton of momentum. You're right. I right. Mean, he and, was the golden child. Right. And I just, I was, I was like, listen, this guy, if he gets rolling, and they do his campaign right, he will blaze through the field and be the president, and that's not good. He does the thing with Disney, verifying the point, my point that he is not the guy that you want. Then he doubled down on it, and then he kept talking, and now it's just like, all right, well, fortunately, he's talked himself out of this thing. But I thought that I thought he was a threat on two fronts. I thought that he would be a good candidate, but I also thought he would be the wrong guy you would want in that office. 
Um, and, you know, I guess fortunately he, he did talk, talk his way out of it. Uh, you know, it's, it's not all written in stone yet. Who knows? Things could turn around, but I think, yeah. I think he's dead in the water. I, I, used to, I used to live in Orlando in, a, in Orlando. There was an expression that you don't fuck with the rat because the rat has teeth. <laughs> and I like that. it, it, it holds up. Yeah. That's I a mean, powerful This is going to be around a lot longer than Ron DeSantis. Well, and, and just keep in mind, you know, the primaries have a way of really shifting the perception and dynamic. I mean, you can go back to multiple. I mean, just go back to 2020. You know, Biden, remember, Biden wasn't even on the radar, right? I mean, right. you know, he came, I mean, it, it was the after the tail end of the primaries where Biden kind of you know, everything fell apart. He, he did what Ron DeSantis should have done. Said, All right, we're just going to throw out Uncle Joe. Um, you know what I mean? So, sure. so things can change very quickly because uh, you'll remember back in 2016, it was all Jeb. They, everybody thought Jeb Bush was the, the heir right. apparent, you know, and everything changes once the primary uh, starts. So I would just keep my eyes on this Vivek guy. He's a young guy. He's a sharp guy. Uh, he's said a lot of crazy shit lately. I'm not, you know, I'm not giving him my full endorsement, but in a perfect world, I'd love to see the, the Republicans run Vivek and the Democrats run Pete Buttigieg. I, I'm a, I like gay Pete. I, I'm, I'm a, I like gay Pete. I, I don't like his politics, but he's a smart dude. He's a veteran. He's served this country. He's articulate. He's, again, I, I don't agree with him politically, but he's a reasonable dude. Um, you, you put those two on a ticket, I'll go out and vote, and I won't. Ha I won't have. At least I'll be able to know whatever the outcome. You got a competent person uh, sitting in the chair, and we haven't had that kind of an option here, and I can't remember when since back, you know, the the George H. W. Bush days. So that I would I, I would like to see that match up if it were a perfect world. So I want real quick. Uh, I want to. There's two two more topics that I want to cover. One we can we can cover really quickly. Lauren Boebert uh, goes to go see the live play of Beetlejuice, which I didn't know was a play, but okay. Uh, and oh, did you the Boebert the Boebert thing? Yeah, yeah. the Boebert thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She gets uh, she gets booted out of the play. Um, they said she was laughing loud. She was recording it. Uh, said she was vaping. There's video of her and her date groping each other. Uh, you know, he's got her, he's got his hand on her tit. She goes for his crotch, maybe rubbed his leg, maybe gave him a little, you know, stroke over the pants. Uh, they get escorted out. She goes to the, do you know who I am? And I'm going to call the mayor, blah, 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 blah. Gives the double fingers to the security. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, here's the thing. Uh, my only issue, I don't even care that she's a con. I mean, the, the behavior is not becoming of a congressperson, but I mean, I think given who we had as president, that's out the window. I don't really have much of an issue with it, except for the fact if she's going to lecture people on family values and all this other shit, you can't be in public getting groped and, you know, given over the pants hand jobs, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, what are we doing here? Don't don't sit here and lecture me about, like, unless she, you know, between her kid having a kid at the, you know, when he's 17 or whatever, her whole arrest record, her ex-husband's arrest record, all this other stuff. Her lecturing me on wholesomeness kind of goes out the window, but then in this instance, right? Like in in a public, and it's a play, Beetlejuice. There's families around. Like, come on, what what are we doing, right? I mean, family values has devolved into meaning I'm pro gun and anti abortion. That's what family <laughs> values means now. And anti trans. And anti trans. And it's it's pathetic, but like you said, she's a member of Congress now. She won by like 500 votes. 
It was close. And in the district, it should have been a, a walkthrough. Yeah. So hopefully there's some restore, restoration of sanity, whether it's, you know, Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not going to lump AOC in with them because I think she's an intelligent, accomplished woman. Um, but um, if there's a Democrat that's that big of a crackpot and you want to put them on the chopping block, I'm fine with that. But this woman is an absolute fucking embarrassment to be a public official in our national government. She can still get the pipe, though. Well, if you guys remember, uh, there was a, a French guy back in 1835 wrote a book called Democracy in America, a guy named Tocqueville. And he had a famous quote that said, you, you, you get the government you deserve. Well, I, d- I didn't know that it was him that said that, but I've heard, but I've heard that quote. <laughs> well, well that, that, I mean, that speaks, that, that just really cuts to the bone of it, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, the, the, this was, the, this was the, what the people elected. And until you, until you get beat over the head with enough embarrassment and enough ineptitude, you know, you, you get what you deserve. I mean, you got you to, gotta, I mean, the power of the vote. It comes with consequences on both sides. Sure. And so, yeah. really, you know, we can we could take a piss on Bobert all we want, but is she to blame? I mean, you can't blame a dog for being a dog. <laughs> you know, you got to blame the fucking voters for being so goddamn stupid to put her in office. Yeah. yeah, twice, really. Twice. I mean, it's you know, first time, okay, whatever. Second time, there was enough ammunition not to do exactly, it again. Exactly. They right. reelected her. That's the right. real head scratcher. So um, come on, what the fucking fuck? Right. <laughs> Ultimately, that's Can literally. Can we quote it. you as what the right. fucking fuck? Uh, we're gonna. So I, I want to jump. I want to stay in Colorado. Here we uh, go. I want to stay in Colorado. Uh, take a trip to Boulder. Uh, Coach Prime, uh, Deion Sanders, is you know sort of t- taking the f- college football world by storm. Coached at Jackson State last year, HBCU. Um, they pretty much ran the table. His son quarterbacked, and that he, you know, makes the jump to Colorado. Uh, and that Colorado, the Buffaloes were one and eleven last year, um, and then this year they just, you know, all they did was open up with TCU, which played in the college football championship or uh, college football yeah championship yeah, last year, and uh, they beat them um, in a in a shootout. And then they go and they beat, you know, they just beat up on Nebraska. Uh, and this this week they're playing Colorado State. And uh, the coach from Colorado State uh, had some critique of Dion, saying that, you know, his mother taught him to take off his sunglasses and hat when he talks to adults. And I thought Dion's response to it was was perfect. Uh, from coach speak, Dion gathered the team around and said, man, I'm, I was just watching film. Then I hear this coach from Colorado State talking about, uh, you know, talking about me and making it personal, right? And then he keeps repeating, you know, he made it personal. The team jumps in, and, and every time he says personal, they repeat it. And I just have a feeling that Colorado is going to dismantle Colorado State this week. Um, those kids are going to get embarrassed more so than they were before because their coach opened their mouth, and, and I'm here for it. What say you, Ben? Well, listen, I, I'm not a big uh, – I'm not in the weeds when it comes to college football, but to your point in this story, which has obviously been a national story, and just Dion bringing that program from, uh, you know, from the ashes, it's hugely impressive. Uh, I think on any level of sports, I don't care if it's midget hockey or, uh, you, know, you know, NCAA football or, or pro NFL football, you, you, you put bulletin board material out like that, you give – the opposition, that kind of motivation, never a good idea. 
and clearly to your point, uh, you know, the way Dion has gotten these kids motivated and inspired and done a hell of a job recruiting as well. Um, you know, he's brought in a ton of new talent there into that program. Uh, very impressive. And uh, with you, I, you know, probably ill-advised to, uh, you know, to give them that kind of material relative to motivation. And uh, so, so we'll see how it goes, but uh, I wish him well. I, you know, I grew up watching him prime time, uh, you know, with the, with the Atlanta Falcons. I remember what it was, you know, his first ever play, I think it was a punt return for a touchdown, right? When he was playing for the Falcons. Yeah. Day. He was a lot of fun to watch. So uh, yeah, it's, I, I hope he does well. And it's interesting too, right? I mean, because I think there's, you've got people who support him, right? And then the people who don't like him, right? It, it's interesting to hear the different reasons why they don't like him. Um, you know, a lot of people, oh man, he talks shit about everybody else. And, and, you know, I was pulling this out to a couple of different people. You know, Deion Sanders really wasn't a trash talker in terms to in terms of other people. He talked about himself. He talked himself up a lot, but he wasn't really about trashing he opponents. Was a showboat. Right. He was a showboat, right? Like he was flashy, right? And people, for whatever reason, they they despise the showboat. And I'm just curious as to why, right? Like, especially in sports, like everybody's thing is like, oh, I like that guy because he scored a touchdown and he handed the ball to the ref and then he went to the sideline and acted like he'd been there before. Like, bitch, do you know how hard it is to score a fucking touchdown? Like, if a dude wants to get out there and, and do the electric slide, I'm all for it. Um, I've never had an issue with like, so I, like, and oddly enough, I really wasn't much of a showboater, usually because when I scored, I was tired and I didn't have the energy to do anything. Um, but, you know, I've never had an issue with, you know, the, the, the flashier guys, right? Like some guys, like that's just how they keep their edge. Some guys talk shit to other guys, you know, like some guys just are angry and mean and on the verge of, of homicidal, you know, maniac thoughts, <laughs> but whatever it takes to keep that edge, um, you know, like, do, are, are you the, the, I want my guys to be humble guy or do, do you not care? Just, just do I, your I'm job. More the, I want my guys to be humble, but, but keep in mind, you know, that kind of, uh, keeping your edge and that kind of like some of the trash talkers, like that is a tactic in the, in the heat of the moment. I mean, the shit talk is a psychological tool to use against your opponent. You know, you want to get them off their, you know, their, you know, their, uh, Get them off the game. You know, kind of their mental yeah. fortitude and stand. So, so I don't blame folks for using that type of a tactic, um, and it's different at the at the coaching level. But I mean, if I go back and think about guys like, I mean, I was critical of guys like Johnny Manziel, or, or if you guys remember Chris Perez, it was a closer for the Tribe. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like because when you think about the way people view athletes, you generally find a way to identify with them or disidentify with them. If you identify with them, you feel like they're an extension of yourself. Like you could, you, they, they would emulate the way you would behave in that scenario. Sure. And those that don't, you tend to, you know, kind of uh, be critical of them. There's nothing wrong with that because at the end of the day, it's just entertainment. These are just characters in a movie essentially. Right. But, you know, I'm more of the, you know, hand the ball to the ref and keep your mouth shut because I mean, generally over time, I mean, again, it depends on the sport, I guess, but you know, you guys know I've been a hockey guy my whole life. That That's what was most successful were, were the guys that just uh, were the grinders and uh, didn't, didn't flash too much, but, uh, but I get it. I get the flashiness because to me, it's an, it's an, it's a, it's a psychological tool to use against opponents and uh, you know, Dion using it here, uh, you know, on the, on the bulletin board in the, in the, in the locker room and getting guys motivated around it. So you can't, can't argue with that. You know, I, I have a, a Bolton board story. When I was at WVU, um, Missouri was coming to Morgantown 
and someone posted the Big Eight's going to teach the Little East a lesson in real football. And that was all over the weight room at WVU. And we went out and smoked Missouri in a game we were substantial underdogs. Um, and for that reason, I think Colorado State's coach, if I'm playing for Colorado State, I'm pissed. I'm like, dude, we're already <laughs> going up against a superior team. And now we got to deal with your fucking mouth. You're not getting out of the field. Yeah. Now, I will say this. We're talking about Colorado State football. If this guy doesn't pop off at the mouth, to this moment, I don't know the name of Colorado State's coach. But we're still talking about the guy. So if he wants to be a public figure, fine. But you better fucking win, dude. Because yeah, I mean, like, I think, look, you're playing Colorado, so people are going to talk about you just because everybody's talking about Colorado right now. That's true. Um, but, you know, so I don't know if, if you know, in look, I don't, I don't even think – I think with a lot of these coaches, they just don't like Dion, right? I think they they were yeah, they're the guys who didn't like the flashiness. They don't like the way that he's doing the recruiting. They they just they don't like it, and so they want to lash out and they open their mouths and like look, this is sports, right? Like Nick Nick Saban ain't gonna say shit about Dion. He's just gonna go out there and try to beat him, right? right? You know he may he may talk shit after the press conference, right? Because Nick has been known to kind of go off a little bit in the in the press conference. See, and see, that's the other issue because he stepped in and had immediate success. So a lot of these coaches are like, "This guy hasn't he hasn't cut his teeth, man. Like he hasn't paid the dues. They're upset. They're jealous essentially because he's like, this guy just stepped in and he's making us look like shit." Well, you know? I, and my and my pushback to that is, I'm sorry, my man paid twenty or you know fifteen years in the NFL, right? Um, right, and yeah, no, and, and and he's and that's like, why I think that there's so much hate for Dion because it's like this guy's just showing you that hey, you know, if you got the pedigree, of, you know, it's not about X's and O's. I mean, I think you'd agree with it. It's not about X's and O's. It's about motivating young kids. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think I, I think yes, it, I think it, it's absolutely about like college football. Urban Meyer is a perfect example of that. He was a great mm-hmm. recruiter and apparently less of a motivator and more of a dictator, but Urban Meyer was a shitty coach in terms of X's and O's and strategy. Yeah, and just tactical decisions. Yeah, we right. saw like, that first he, he was just he was just, a, he was just an amazing recruiter, and the talent won out. And I, I would argue, though, that Dion's probably going to – is probably going to give you a hell of a lot more in the X's and O's. And, you know, Dion was a – he coached high school – he coached a high school team for a couple of years. Then he went to Jackson State – and he was the coach there. So he may not have taken the traditional route, but I, I would argue that, I mean, starting with that 15-year Hall of Fame NFL career and then, you know, for him to step back and then be a high school coach and then go coach at a historically black college, right, where none of these other co- – even some of these other coaches wouldn't even take a job from one of those schools, you know, for any number of reasons, quote-unquote – you know, so for him to go there and then go to Colorado, which was one and eleven, it's not like he walked into to, you know, Alabama or Georgia. Right, right. Um, right. You know, so I, I just it's I, I don't want to say he didn't. I, I I don't know if it's fair to say that he you know he didn't earn his way up, but the the quickness in which he's seen su- success, I think it is jealousy, right? It's like fuck this guy. You know, I had to go coach at Eastern right. Michigan. You disrupted the good old boys network. <laughs> right, I had to go coach at Eastern Michigan and get my ass kicked by you know yep. all these big schools, right. you know, to get to where I'm at. And then this dude, you know, I, you know, so I, I could see it. I could see it both ways. But Ben, uh, we want to thank you again and for. And we, oh, by go the, ahead. By the way, also, just good for CFB broadly, right? Because it just creates more parity, and you know, there's just been so much concentration in the major conferences. 
where you know it's just good to see parity uh yeah. not just for for kids for looking for options to go find the next level but you know good good for the sport good for sponsors good for bowl games good yeah. good all around because you and, need you need a dispersion of, of talent and uh winning programs and, and this is definitely a, a product in a large part of the transfer portal oh yeah because 10 years ago he wouldn't i mean i i heard an interview yesterday where someone said they've got 80 new kids at that school. Yeah. I, was, I don't know if that was a hyperbolic no, he number. Got, no, he, he cut the whole team, uh, except for, save for like, I don't know, like 10 kids. Cut all of them. Said they weren't up to standard and then brought all new kids in via recruiting in the transfer portal. You know, and the transfer portal is amazing. I, I just think back how, if it were around when I was in college, it would have literally changed the trajectory of my playing career in life because... You know, I was a large recruit, big-time recruit that decided to go to West Point, transferred, and my options, if I wanted to play the next year, I had to go to an FCS school or, you know, if I wanted to – Sit out a year, yeah. Right, or I would have had to sit out a year. Well, now I would have been able to transfer from West Point. I could have gone – like, I was heavily recruited. Nick Saban wanted me at Michigan State, right? Like, was – like, told me I made a bad decision by choosing to go to West Point Military Academy, right? And so, you know, I could have left and – I don't know. I could have gone back. He was willing to even take me, but there was nothing we could do to get around me sitting out. So then that's how I end up at UMass. But if that transfer portal is there and you got to remember who was at Michigan State at the time, right? You put me and TJ Duckett in the same backfield together. Child, please. Anyway. All right. So before we go, guys, yep. before we go, look, uh, we got a big Monday night game here. Brown Steelers divisional game. Browns obviously just embarrassed the Bengals. On uh, on Sunday, surprised the hell out of just about everybody. You're really gonna do this, Ben? Look great, right? He he ran around a little bit. He didn't look great throwing the ball, but man, that defense was really something else. What do you guys think about the game Monday night? You beat the Steelers, going two and zero in the division. You're setting up for a really nice run, maybe this season. I don't know. Uh, Okay, do you you know that Steve is a huge Steelers fan? I, I, that's why I'm asking because I want to kind of. So you know you poked, okay. you poked the bear and you're going to go away. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Look, so here, here, here's what it is. Like Steelers sh- theoretically should be an underdog in this game, right? They just got drilled by San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, you, you just got drilled by San Francisco by, you know, 23 points or whatever. Um, you know, it's Kenny Pickett versus Deshaun Watson. You know, I mean, Deshaun Watson was a league MVP. Or you know, close to it or whatever, and yeah, I think he was. And then Kenny Pickett, you know, is in his second year, and and you know, the jury's still out on him. Um, but you do have it is the Steelers, it is Mike Tomlin. They are at home. It's Monday night. Our record on Monday night at home is pretty good. Um, I think we're like twenty and zero um, uh, over the last you know however many years. So uh, honestly, I think the Steelers bounce back. I think it ends up being a close game. Um, that I think I think the Steelers will win it, and chances are it's going to be because of T.J. Watt. Like T.J. Watt is just a different animal. Like Miles yeah, Garrett, Miles Garrett is really good. Miles Garrett is one of the best defensive players in the league, but T.J. Watt is better. And I say this because it's not only do they get does he get the sacks, but when T.J. Watt makes plays, it's when they have to happen. There's two minutes left. You need the ball. You need a sack. You need a stop. He gets it, right? Like, like yeah. the Steelers, like I can go back the last three years, I could probably count on – I could probably get up into both hands counting the number of times he literally made the play that saved that game. Um, and to me, like that's, that's – the, there's just a different level 
you know, that's when you get into the Reggie White, Bruce Smith sort of game record, game changer. And Miles Garrett could be that, but I don't know if Miles Garrett has that edge. At least he hasn't shown it yet. Like Miles Garrett sometimes can disappear in key moments, right? TJ Watt, on the other hand, they're like, all right, well, we're going to block you with four guys and hope that's enough. And sometimes it's not. I would just point out that play Garrett made on that fourth down play from a little bit over the 30 uh, where the Bengals tried to go for it on fourth and he got that sack on Burrow. That was just a critical play that that Miles Garrett came up strong. Let let me ask you guys this too, though, just on Deshaun, because it's obviously a polarizing figure. There's a lot of folks that have kind of been off put given his off the field struggles and controversies. Is that something that, you guys think about does it frame your opinion of him as a player no because uh, you know there's a lot of folks that i speak to that are just, and, and frankly like lifetime browns fans that have just been totally off put by it um i tend to i don't really know what to think i just try not to think about it too much I and mean, again i look at it as entertainment so i'm not really all that interested in their off the field activities but what, where do you guys stand on the john piece uh, I'm a Bills fan, so it's easy for me to just duck this. I'm sorry. I'm but, sorry about the Jets. That's yeah, a tough loss given. Oh, well, you're just coming on swinging today. We bring up uh, your poking Steve. Uh, um, yeah, I was very, very. Uh, I, I was very calm and rational during that game. Browns are undefeated, so I can poke around. I'm going to take my fair. opportunity. It's very rare the Browns are undefeated. <laughs> you can say, you're, when you talk to a, a winless Bills and Steelers fan as an undefeated Browns fan, I'm sure it feels good. Enjoy it while it lasts. Um, I know exactly. I can't let this. I, I'm not going to let the moment be fleeting. I got to. Really... This reminds me of when Lee Corso coached Indiana, scored a touchdown against Ohio State, and had a picture taken in front of the scoreboard because they were ahead before they lost fifty-one to seven. <laughs> well, I'll just say this: as a Browns fan, it, I, I think ahead. And if you guys, you guys live in Cleveland, you can imagine what this city would be like in December if we have commanded the division and we're heading to the playoffs with little momentum. I know I'm getting way, way ahead of myself. But we haven't seen this in over 20 years. And since I was a kid before the Browns left in 99, you know, we haven't been, we haven't had that kind of excitement. Of course, uh, we uh, had the, you know, it was with early 2000s, Butch Davis, Kelly Holcomb. We were beating the Steelers. Steve, you remember this game? We were beating the Steelers 35-7 at halftime. Mm-hmm. We blew that lead, right? Uh, Baker took us, uh, what, a couple years ago into the play with that helmet-to-helmet against the Chiefs in the divisional game. With the touchback call, that, that changed everything. That, and the Chiefs went on to win the Super Bowl that year. I mean, so for the if the Browns have some momentum and they're in command of the division going into, uh, you know, the the end of the season, back half of the season, you can imagine what the city's going to be like, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It could be a lot of fun and good for the local economy and all that stuff. So, you know, I I, I again I watch it as kind of just a tangential fan, and to me, it's I try to look at it as uh, entertainment versus religion. But uh, but I'd love to see the Browns, uh, you know finally get over the hump and uh, to that point um, I so I I agree I think I think the sports teams being good is good for the city Um, yeah you know it just it drives so much business Um, there's a lot of positivity um, and and again it's just the the economic impact of you know these professional sports teams being good you know you, you really can't can't be denied right like so you know you root for that but that being said I'm gonna go ahead and need the Steelers to to level set you people. All right, get get rid of some of this positivity, right? Not go ahead and knock you down a peg on Monday night, so we can kind of get back to reality. Everybody get to one and one, and then we can all calm down. Um, you know, but I I am excited about the game. I just I love football. Um, it, you know, having played it, 
you know, in college and been so close to it for so long, like I, I put more stock into it than, than I probably should. Um, but I also own that and I won't shy away from it, right? Like I just, I, 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 like it's important to me. I think there's a lot of value to the game overall in terms of developing people. Um, you know, and, and it's not always, you get out of it what you put into it. But at the same time, it, pre it presents a lot of opportunities and, and, you know, on, you know, small levels, whether it's kids getting scholarships or it's the, you know, generating money for universities or generating, you know, money for cities, municipalities, tax base, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of positive that comes out of it. So this time of year for me is just is it's I, I, I love it, you know. Oh, look, 100 percent. And I would say just organized sports generally speaking, uh, you know, particularly when you're in this culture right now of kids, you know, addicted to video games and leading these sedentary lifestyles, you know, uh, you know, just organized sports, getting kids active, learning discipline, learning a team dynamic, doesn't matter if you're playing hockey, football, uh, you, you know, soccer, wh whatever your flavor of choice, uh, it's, it's something that we need to embrace and, and support at the local levels. Um, so I, I agree with you there. And, and just with regard to, you mentioned just the economic impact of, of professional sports, I would just also point out an area of criticism for me, and, and a lot of people would push back on me for this opinion, but, you know, the Indians going from Indians to Guardians, I, I just thought it was a, just a terrible, I mean, again, there was pressure on the organization to do it, but just from a business standpoint, uh, and just the value of that intellectual property, right? When you looked at the the history of of merchandise sales and you know the, the cheap Wahoo stuff and everything, I mean, say what you want. You know, people say that it was racist or whatever, but I sit here and I watch the Kansas City Chiefs fans doing the fucking goddamn tomahawk chop and shit, man. Or the fucking guy in uh, down in Florida State running around with a fucking face paint headdress on, throwing fucking spears in the middle of the fucking field. But we can't be called the Indian. Like I, I don't know, bro. That, that he was an actual Indian, and I, but you think about whatever. what that's done to the. I mean, the team hasn't performed well this year, and there were some blips this year where attendance was up. But in aggregate, um, I think you've had a lot of people that were lifelong Tribe fans, myself included. Um, I just don't engage with the team the way I used to, and it's not. I, people try to frame, oh, you're boycotting me. I don't. It's not a fucking boycott, you know. I just. It's just I can't identify. It's not the team that I knew, and I still love baseball. But I'm not alone. And people want to say, like, oh, you're an outlier. You're not. I'm not. And I can tell you that anecdotally. And so, you know, these professional sports teams, what they do for this economy, keep in mind the tribe, you're talking about 82 games uh, downtown every season versus the Browns with eight. Or right, right. Nine, maybe it's eight or nine, right? So you just you, you think about the impact of – and, of course, and it will give Cavs credit. Cavs have an exciting team. I'm not a big NBA guy, but they seem to have an exciting team. They're, they're, they're coming around. I think they're on the up and up. But it's really sad to see what's happened with the baseball teams. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. There's a private equity guy in there that I've heard rumors that might want to make some changes if he gets – more influence relative to his ownership stake. But I also so would argue too with the, with the, with the, with the Guardians or the Tribe that win, win, start w winning, right? Like in in let's get into the playoffs and have a deep run in the playoffs. Get yourself to a World Series, win a World Series. That'd be fantastic, right? And that can right. help kind of solve some of those ills. I, I get the the you know the connection to the to the Chief Wahoo and all that other stuff, um, but I think that it you know. Winning can go a long way to help sort of, you know, kind of mend that, uh, you know, fix that wound. It may never heal yeah, it. Yeah, you're, you're right. Look, if they were to be successful and win, it would alleviate a lot of that disdain or a lot of those negative feelings. 
but the, but the problem is that, you know, as a guy growing up, I grew up here in Cleveland, um, and it's just like it. It's like you, the Steelers are to you. Those teams become part of your identity, you know, and it becomes an extension of yourself. And when that gets adulterated in a way that you know you're just kind of not aligned with, it just doesn't sit well with you. And and I'm a guy that was a season ticket holder for many years. I'm talking full season tickets. And even when I lived in Chicago, I still had partial season tickets. So I was always involved in the franchise economically and um you know i'm just not inclined to do that anymore and again i'm not i don't i still root for him i want to see him win but it's it's just not the same and and i think again from a business standpoint which is what these things exist i mean teams exist to make money whether you like it or not yeah um i just i don't feel like it was a great business uh, decision whether it was imposed upon them or otherwise uh yeah. it was just a shame to see I, I do need to push back that the Seminoles actually are backed by the Seminole Nation. Now I'm defending Florida State, which I hate doing. So you made me defend Steve and Florida State today. Right. Thanks, but, but and, and then you poked on, the bear right? with the Steelers thing. But we, but we could go on. I mean, there's sure. you know there, there's the Chicago Blacks. And by the way, I'm friends with the Wirtz family, and they had pressure to change that uh, that brand identity, and they told they told the the interest groups to go fuck themselves. Hmm. That's an original six NHL team, and they're like, hey, the Blackhawks, you can't do this anymore. Like, fuck you. What are you going to do about it? They just said, we're not going to change. You look at shit. I mean, you could even get into the other side of the uh, racial spectrum, you know, the fighting Irish. You know, you got a little drunk leprechaun, white dude. I mean, is it? tell me that's not like a, a caricature of, of the Irish. I mean, there's any number of, uh, you know, uh, there's any number of these analogs that you could point to that, you know, could be potentially perceived as somehow – I guess offensive or whatever, but it's just strange to me that the Cleveland Indians were were selected amongst all of these other, uh, this whole mosaic of other, you know, I guess uh, what could be perceived as offensive franchises or, or uh, you know, monikers, and you know, we, you know, you're talking about a hundred year baseball history here in Cleveland, and somehow, you know, we 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 got kind of forced into making that kind of change. I just. Uh, just really unfortunate and um you know again i i'm i don't want to beleaguer the point because it's you know you can't change history but uh it's just you know and you bring up the the seminole nation uh you know supporting florida state that's great i mean you know what the hell were the unions supposed to do i, I mean this whole notion that this is somehow I mean, what are we supposed to do? i mean we, we live in cuyahoga county right there's mahoning county there's Miami County. What are we supposed to change the name of the counties to because they reference Native Americans? I mean, I just I, what the what the fuck? I mean, where do you draw the line? It's just uh, I don't I don't get it. Ben, this is another conversation that we've had for a very long time, but we've already we're not quite at hour forty five. So yeah, we, yeah, no, we, no, I, I dude, it, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to talk markets. It was a, always great chatting with you guys, and you know we could talk for another two hours if we wanted to. So. Right. We'll, which we'll, which we'll is what I was afraid is going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for no, the, no, we'll for set the... it up for another one in a few weeks or whatever. But I yeah, always great chatting with you guys, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with regard to, to to markets into the close of the year. But um, yeah, you got this election cycle popping up here. We're we're at the cusp of it. And and by the way, just related to markets, I mean that's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, it's it's it, it's it, you. It could be a dampening effect on markets. We didn't get a chance to talk about derivatives and zero date to expiration options. We'll talk about that next time. But just the dampening effect of volatility on the market isn't just zero date options, and we won't get into that right now. Obviously, we don't. Have thanks, time. thanks for leaving the but, audience on their, the edge of their seats. 
Yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, we'll talk about that next time. But, but also just our proximity to an election cycle. Y you would imagine that this uh, administration will find ways to just massage the economy just enough to make it sure it doesn't fall out of bed ahead of uh, ahead of an election. And I'm, I'm sure you guys can understand what I mean by that. Yeah, we do. All right, uh, Steve, you want any, any closing thoughts? No, we're, we're all good, man. Like I said, thank you for uh, jumping on with us. Uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, weeks here. Uh, and, you know, everybody have a great weekend. And Ben, you yeah. if you've got Thank a final you. remark, it's all the floor is yours. No, no, I just appreciate you guys. Always fun to chat. You guys hit me up anytime and uh, looking forward to the next chat. All right, Thank man. you again for coming on. We are at Whiskey Congress on Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever the fuck, and uh, <laughs> threads, whatever the thing that no one cares about anymore is. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. And we are done.